0: The message this afternoon is based on the word of God as the church summarizes summarizes it in Lord's Day 19, which we will read together. Lord's Day 19 is on page 533 of the Book of Praise. Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await, as judge from heaven, the very same person who before has, has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into, into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Beloved in Christ, the last couple of years, there's been medical studies showing how bad it is for you to sit. If you sit a lot, there's risk to your health. Those who sit down at a desk all day need to make sure they take time to stand and get regular exercise. Watches these days will even alert you, telling you it's time to stand up. You've been sitting too long. Usually we think of sitting as a very passive activity. We say to someone, don't just sit there, get moving. For Christ our Savior, sitting down isn't something passive, nor is it harmful. Scripture and the Apostles' Creed speak of him ascending, then sitting down. Once he finished his saving mission, he was seated on a throne in heaven. For years he'd been on his feet, as it were. He'd worked hard, teaching the crowds, leading his disciples, healing the sick, and then bearing the Father's wrath. He worked hard and now he was finished, so he sat. Yet this sitting isn't like you or I would do after vacuuming the house or mowing the lawn, Christ actually sat down so that he could keep on working. Christ sat down, we confess, at the right hand of the Father, which is a great place for getting things done. In ancient times kings and queens often had a person of great ability and faithfulness sitting at their right side. They could turn to them directly and give the word, go lead my armies out to war, or let those prisoners free. It's how they put their decisions into action. What the person at the right hand said and did was the will of the king himself. Christ seated at the right hand of the Father means that he has received all authority in heaven and earth. It means that he is now enthroned in the highest place. The same one who saved us at the cross is ruling over all things for our good until he comes again. This is our theme from Lord's Day 19. The enthroned Christ is the Lord of all. He is the head of the church. He is the king of all creation. He is the judge of every person. It is said about Jesus in Ephesians 1 verse 23 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, gave Jesus Christ as head over all things to the church. The verses go on to say that the church is his body. Today we talk about someone being head of a department or head of a company, but the title of head for Jesus means much more than the position of a director or a boss. It's part of how scripture describes the meaning of our connection to Christ. It's a lesson in basic anatomy. We know that our head is over and above all the other parts of our body, what we call members. The dictionary defines member as a body part or an organ. We know that our head or our brain is in command of our body parts, our members. If you're swimming in the pool or vacuuming the house and want your hands and feet and fingers to do what they're supposed to do, they're going to need signals sent from your brain. The head gives the body its necessary direction, even its whole purpose for being and doing. Now take that and apply it to Christ and His Church. As members of Christ, you and I are intimately connected to Him. Up in heaven, by faith we're connected to Him, even as the different parts of our body are connected to our head. And because we're connected to our Savior in this way, we receive so many member rewards. Starbucks, Costco, and American Express advertise the privileges of member rewards, while membership in Christ has its privileges too. The greatest privilege of all has to do with our status or our position before God. Being united to Christ our head means that that his life is our life, His holiness is our holiness. All of his righteous accomplishments are credited to our account. We used to be disconnected from God, strangers and enemies because of our sin. But through Christ's blood, we are brought back to the Lord, our maker. Christ became our head, so now we live through him. Let's get back to the idea of Jesus enthroned above. If Christ is our head, then as the living parts of his body, it follows that we share in his power and his goodness. Although we are physically apart from Jesus, that should not be our focus. He might be up in heaven, but Christ is still busy sending benefits directly to us, his members. Remember Ephesians 5, the display text when you walked into church this afternoon? For no one hates his own flesh, but instead nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. See, Christ our head loves his body. He loves us. He does everything in his power to feed and maintain us. This is what he does. As question and answer 51 says, by his Holy Spirit, Christ pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. This catechism teaching comes from Ephesians 4, which says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, Daily Christ sends blessings in so many different ways so many we could never count all his gifts He gives the material things that sustain our life. He gives the physical abilities you possess He gives the blessings of family and church All these are gifts from him. They're given by the Father for Christ's sake and Christ also most importantly gives us the riches of the Holy Spirit Question and answer 51 of the Catechism states that he pours out gifts. The verb pours comes from Acts 2, which tells us about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Verse 33 reads, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Notice, first of all, that the word depicts generosity. If you pour something out, you're not holding anything back. It's not the last drop of a cup, but it's plenty that you pour. Last week a group of Nigerian refugees were found on a container ship's rudder after spending 14 14 days there crossing the Atlantic Ocean. When they were found, the first thing they were given was water. Not a sip, not a cup, but a huge jug of water for them to pour into themselves as much as they needed they could have. Like that, Christ pours out his gifts on those who ask. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ saturates us with love and joy and peace. You can ask him for wisdom. You can ask him for patience. Christ will give it generously. More than that, Christ, our head, sends the constant signals that we need for working in his service. It's when you're connected to Christ, your head, that you'll know what you need to do. If you're connected to Jesus Christ by regular prayer and through his word, you will begin to understand what your calling is in this world. You may still have your questions about his will. Big decisions might still be hard to make. But you'll find your way through fellowship with Jesus, your head. If you're connected to him, the head will direct you. In Ephesians, Paul writes more about this body of Christ. Ephesians 4 verse 15 and 16 say, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You can hear there's a point he's emphasizing He speaks about the whole body, every joint, every part. For we've all received heavenly gifts from Christ. Every member of the body has blessings from the head. God's word lets us assume that every member will be blessed with some ability to serve and to contribute. Some in the church will be especially good at showing mercy while others will be able to teach and others will be able to encourage some receive this gift and some that. But we can be certain that Christ gives his spirit to each of his members so that in different ways we can bring benefit and blessing to one another. The head wants his body to be edified, to be built up, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. So, beloved, since you're a part of Christ's body here on earth, How have you been involved in bodybuilding? How have you strengthened the church? Can you say that you are contributing in some way to the good of Christ's people? I wonder if that's something we think about very often, doing our share. As members of the body, it's far easier to sit back and let others do the work. The same ones who did it before, it's easier for us to be critical of how things are done in the church too. We can point out how this is or how that should be. We can complain how people in the church aren't doing what they think they should, but is that really contributing, really helping the body? In these cases, is each part doing their share? These are important questions for us as believers and as church, important because our head has poured out gifts on us, his members, and this is the reason We are each called to glorify the heavenly Christ by our service here on earth. So we need to give ourselves cheerfully and wholeheartedly to that task. Earlier earlier we read from Psalm 110. This is a royal psalm, one that was probably sung whenever the king was crowned in Israel. When a king took his throne for the first time, the people praised God. It was a gift that someone faithful was in charge. But though this psalm is about the earthly kings in David's line, there's another level to Psalm 110. From the New Testament, we know it proclaims Jesus. He was praised during his ministry as Jesus, son of David, even crucified as king of the Jews, and finally he was enthroned on high. When Christ came into the heavenly places after his resurrection and ascension, God granted him a position of power. God took the words of Psalm 110 into his mouth, sit at my right hand. My son, you've proven yourself. Sit down here, the father said to Jesus, to rule and to be the instrument of my will on earth. Rule over every president and every king. Have dominion over every enemy and every hater. Be king over all the angels chief over every nation, Lord of all creation, for I give you all authority in heaven and on earth. Today Christ is seated in heaven. From his throne he governs over all things, great and small, seen and unseen. Ephesians 1 says that Christ is at God's right hand in the heavenly places, for above all, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Christ is king at God's right hand, and for his reign, he's been given a clear mandate. It's again Ephesians 1 that tells us how it is. God put all things under Christ's feet, and he gave him to be head over all things for the church. Christ isn't busy with some goal that we have no idea about. He doesn't have a hidden agenda. No, in a way, it's very simple. Christ has ascended to be head over all things, for his people, for the church, he governs with both eyes constantly on us. And his government is total, inclusive of all things. Like we see in Lord's Day 10, he rules everything, leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Christ the King is directing the decisions of governments for us. He's holding his power. He's holding in his power every material thing, every physical condition, every spiritual reality, anything and everything that might ever have an impact on us, the citizens of his, king, of his kingdom. Christ the King rules all things for us. That's an amazing truth for us personally that Christ is stronger than our troubles, that he is Lord of our pain and depression. Christ the King is greater than our worst anxieties and mightier than our toughest temptations. He is Lord of it all. It's also an amazing truth for us as church that Christ is King. As King, he is greater than every godless opponent. He is wiser than every conspiracy against his word. He can also outlast anyone who challenges him. Christ the King isn't sitting on the throne with his fingers crossed, hoping that everything works out in the end. He's on his throne, ruling from a position of strength. Our salvation is his constant goal, and it's the glue that holds his plan together. Through him, the Father governs all things. Meditate on it, because this truth means we have no reason to be afraid. For us, fear is such a natural reaction. We fear so many things. We're not just afraid of heights or public speaking or spiders, usually we can avoid those things. But we fear everything that can go wrong, turn out badly for us, everything that could end up less than perfect or ideal. And so much of this fear arises from the realization that we're not actually sitting on the throne. That sounds strange, but it's true. Most of the time, we like to think that we're in charge, that we're in control of things. By sticking to our schedule, obsessing over the details, by making plans and anticipating the future, we suppose we actually have a measure of control. Then something happens, and we realize we're powerless. It doesn't take much, and we come to the conclusion that we're not actually on the throne. We realize there's so much we can't control, but Christ can. With him at God's right hand, our lives are completely secure. From Romans 8, we know that nothing at all can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a powerful promise. And what gives that promise its punch is the rule of Christ. Everything in creation bends to his will. None of it surprises him. None of it leaves him without answers, and none of it can keep us from his love. Jesus was conceived, born, he was anointed, he suffered, was crucified, was dead and buried and resurrected. That's been the story of his life all along. How much Christ has done for his people. So now that he is ascended and seated at God's right hand, he won't let us go. He won't give us up to the striving of the nations, to the small troubles of his life, or even surrender us to the grasp of the devil. Christ rules us from his throne for our salvation. So, praise your King in your worship and prayer. Honour your King with your wholehearted trust. Glorify your King by your willing service. There's a final position that the enthroned Christ has, and that is judge. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives us a preview of what will happen at the end of time. Previews are good because they prepare us. Now we know what to expect. Jesus says this in Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. In Scripture, God the Father is often described as the great judge, but at the last day, we see Christ in this role. The Father gives him this, because judging is a position of great privilege and honour. Think of the prestige that judges still have today, like the judges of the Supreme Court. They have a great and far-reaching authority. Only those with the right credentials and reputation will be appointed. In the same way, it's a glorious position that Christ holds as the judge of every person. And it's a position that he earned. He earned it by being true to his mission. His first coming to the earth was clouded in obscurity and shame. Lots of people missed it because they weren't looking for God in the flesh. But his second appearing will be glorious and unmistakable, and every eye will see him. For God has exalted him to the highest place, says Paul, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and under the earth. Before him every knee shall bow. Note that well, not just those who confessed his name, but everyone, even the unbelievers and idolaters and hypocrites, all these shall come before his great throne and kneel before him, and we will all be judged by him. Jesus says that all the nations will be gathered before him. On that day, there will be a great separating. It will be like a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. In Palestine, when a shepherd had his animals out in the valleys and plains, they'd all flock together, sheep and goats and other livestock. They'd feed all day in the same pastures and drink all day in the same streams. But at night, they'd be separated by the shepherd. Apparently, sheep and goats aren't, are, are of different temperaments or character. Sheep are docile and calm. Goats are unruly and aggressive, so they need to be kept apart in different pens or they'll hurt each other. We know Christ as a shepherd of his flock and believers as his sheep. Right now, in this world, the godly and the wicked live together. We're on the same street, at the same workplaces and shops sometimes in the same schools. Hopefully we're distinguished by some things as Christians. But no one can see into the heart and really know who the people of Christ are. But the day will come when the judge will gather all nations before him and he'll start dividing. He will distinguish his believers from everyone else. All other divisions will be abolished and and the only distinction will be twofold, sheep and goats saints and sinners. The Lord Jesus will ask every last person, did you believe in Christ alone for life and salvation? Did you worship me in true faith? Did you serve me in the time my Father gave you? Did you trust in me for salvation and acknowledge that it was me on the throne and not you? Using the questions implied in Matthew 25 everyone will be asked by Jesus the great judge, When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me drink? When I was a stranger, did you take me in? Or when I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick or in prison, did you come visit me? Notice the tone of these questions. They don't focus on how much we know, nor do they center on outward religion, things we could possibly fake by being in our pew every Sunday, or by praying at our meal times, but the questions will be practical and concrete. They will focus on how much help we gave to spread the gospel, where we served, and whether we were merciful to the suffering. Christ, Jesus explains that if we did these things for his servants, then we did these things for him. And to those who didn't, Jesus will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared by the devil and his angels. It's a fearful scene for unbelievers. But what about us? We'll be asked those questions too. Did you worship Christ in true faith? Did you serve him obediently in the time the Father gave you? Remember that we're given this preview of the final judgment so that we can be prepared. We're told this parable so that we can get ready to meet the judge. Compare it to walking into a crowded room of strangers all talking with one another. I'm sure you've had that experience. For a moment, standing near the door, you feel tense and self-conscious, but then relief. You're so glad to see someone on the other side of the room that you recognize. There's great security in a friend, a blessing in the welcome of an old acquaintance. So on that day, we come before Christ for judgment. We might be anxious, feel alone, but then the relief that we recognize someone. We know the very one who's about to pass judgment. On the last day, says the Catechism in Lord's Day 19, the very same person who will judge us is the one who already bore our sins. The one sitting on the throne will be the one who once was hanging on the cross, the one who has covered all our transgressions. Then Christ will claim his believers. There are the sinners I redeemed from death. I'm the head to, the, to these members who are my own body. I'm the king, and these are my people. I'm the good shepherd, and these are the sheep for whom I laid down my life. And then a final thing. Once he's separated us, notice where the judge in Matthew 25 will seat us. At his right hand. He puts us in that place of, of high honor and privilege. Christ will seat us with him. In the heavenly realms so that we can rule over the new creation. May it be so for all of us. May we hear these words of the Saviour. May each one of us on that day hear the blessed words of Christ. Come sit at my right hand. Inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you. Amen. Let's sing hymn 44 stanzas 1 3 4 & 5. Rejoice the Lord is King.